welcome to another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. I'm your host, Mike Bentley. And in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at pest management from a much different perspective than we typically would on this podcast. We're going to dive into the role of pest control in the armed forces. Believe it or not, soldiers have suffered more injuries throughout history as a result of arthropod-borne disease than they have from all of the man-made weapons combined. That's because our soldiers often find themselves in areas where malaria or other deadly diseases are widespread, or because they work in conditions that dramatically increase their exposure to biting or stinging arthropods. With so many soldiers stationed across the country and around the world, it's hard to imagine how one would go about coordinating such an important pest management effort on a global scale. So I sat down with U.S. Naval Captain Eric Hoffman, Director of the Armed Forces Pest Management Board, to get a better idea of exactly how this can be accomplished. To get things started, I asked Captain Hoffman to shed some light on his role as Director and the primary objectives of the Armed Forces Pest Management Board. So now, your role now is... It's the Director of the Armed Forces Pest Management Board, and it's also the Director of DOD Pest Management. So basically, my responsibility is to provide guidance to the services with regards to their pest management program. And the board's responsibility, basically, not only serves a forum for discussion for the services regarding pest management, but we do recommend policy uh, to the Pentagon, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, which pretty much guides uh, the services within their pest management programs. We also have a research and development program that looks at new techniques and tools for disease vector control and pest management. And we also have a, an information uh, division, which basically collects information and disseminates it out to our customer base. And the customer base is? Customers can range from uh, the individual that just comes right out of basic training. He's our, or she, he's our direct customer, uh, the ones we support, all the way up to uh, leadership in the Pentagon who make decisions based on pest management and other things related to medical entomology and installation pest management. One of the main reasons why I was so excited to sit down with Captain Hoffman for this interview was because I am fascinated by the crazy influence that arthropod-borne disease has had on military history, and I couldn't wait to learn more about it from someone who had first-hand knowledge of this kind of stuff. Now, when I say that arthropod-borne diseases influenced military history, I mean they literally shaped the course of military history. Let me give you a quick example using Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, I'm talking about the French military leader and emperor who famously conquered much of Europe in the early 19th century, not the tall, lanky dude from the 2004 cult classic, Napoleon Dynamite. Dang! Napoleon Bonaparte is famous for his many military victories, but he's also pretty well known for some epic defeats. One of the most notorious failed conquests is that of his attempted invasion of Russia in 1812. So famous, in fact, that it inspired Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, which is what you're hearing in the background right now, and Tolstoy's famed novel, War and Peace. Napoleon began his conquest with an estimated 600,000 men, but by the end, only about 30,000 reportedly survived. What led to the complete devastation of his army? Believe it or not, it had little to do with bullets. The majority of Napoleon's soldiers fell victim to typhus. At the time, no one knew that typhus was spread by infected human body lice, which were incredibly common and very easily spread among soldiers, especially those individuals wearing the same clothes for days on end, living in extremely close quarters. All of these things were ideal conditions for a louse outbreak. And in only the first month of his campaign, Napoleon lost an estimated 80,000 soldiers. 
By December, Napoleon was down to only 20,000 soldiers fit enough for battle, and his dreams of Russian conquests were all but over. This is just one of many examples. Pretty crazy stuff and really helps to demonstrate why vector control in the military is so incredibly important today. So, armed with just enough knowledge about this stuff to be dangerous, I asked Captain Hoffman to help me by filling in some gaps and to share some more knowledge about the history of medical entomology in the U.S. Armed Forces. Uh, prior to World War II, the 1940s, military medical entomology really wasn't a specialty. Uh, the military dealt with pest management and, and medical entomology issues on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, if it affected them, they, they did the best they could, and they moved on. Starting World War II, uh, particularly in the Pacific, but other places in the world, disease uh, transmitted by arthropods became a huge issue, particularly for those folks island hopping around the Pacific uh, that were impacted by malaria and dengue to a lesser extent. It wasn't sustainable. There needed to be some action taken to reduce the, the casualties due to malaria and disease, uh, vector-borne disease. And so both the Navy and the Army basically commissioned entomologists from academia and sent them out to the Pacific and said, you need to control this. And they implemented integrated pest management programs uh, to reduce the impact of malaria, and they were highly successful. Based upon that success, the Army in particular took a look at the capability and they said, this isn't a one-time shot. We're going to need this in the future if we're going to be successful as a military. And so they established at that point the Armed Forces Pest Management Board, which was at that time called the Rodent Insect Control Committee. And the whole goal of that committee was to bring the services together. And they were very vision-oriented. Uh, it wasn't just Army. They included the Navy. They include, included the uh, Public Health Service and other agencies. They brought them together and said, you need to discuss issues impacting the DOD with regard to disease and with regard to pest management in general, our installations, our materiel, anything that would affect our mission, you need to look at and, and be proactive and, and find where your gaps are and address them. And so that's where we got our start from. And the DOD in particular is, is one of the, the largest employers of entomologists in the world because of that mission, because of the need to reduce the impact of pests. In addition to saving lives, having dedicated medical entomologists and pest management professionals on site provides another very important function. It ensures readiness. I'll let Captain Hoffman explain here just how critical combat readiness is to ensuring the functionality of a unit and ultimately to the success of a mission. In the DOD, we use the word readiness, and, and that is the key to being able to do your job. What we do is we support that mission, support enhancing readiness, the ability to do your job no matter where it is and no matter what time it is. And pest management and disease vector control are our key uh, pieces of that, that readiness piece to make sure that individuals are healthy enough to do their job. A lot of times when you think about pest management, most people think, well, that's easy. I mean, that, that's something that everybody does. I do it at home. I mean, how hard can it be? It is really a complex idea. It's something that has many elements to it, and, and, and those elements are constantly changing. Pest management issues in this country are a little bit different than pest management issues in another country. And just to give you a perspective, I think, uh, with integrated pest management, the techniques are pretty consistent across the board no matter where you go. Uh, I think the difference in the DOD is the scope of, of what we're responsible for. Just throw out a few numbers, and I'm just taking these off the top of my head. I'm trying to remember exactly what they are, but I think we're in the ballpark here. 
So the DOD is basically a population of about 2.8 million people across the world, and that includes active duty, reserve, guard, and civilians. At any one time uh, during the year, we're in all seven continents, uh, in about 160 different countries, and at about 47, 4,800 different sites. And each one of those areas has specific pest management issues that have to be addressed. And this could be anything from an individual that's on a, a deployment uh, out in the countryside, uh, maybe he has a few people with him, and nothing more than that, to huge installations that look like small cities. Uh, so that's the gambit of, of pest management. And, and being able to meet the challenges at each one of those levels is, is obviously uh, a concern for us. And it, it's, a, it's a constant puzzle, uh, I guess, to be ahead of, of what the next challenge is. And so it's a huge responsibility but it's also a huge opportunity as well. And I think that's what motivates a lot of us to enter this profession and, and actually focus on this area is that you're able to use your problem-solving skills and your education to solve problems that maybe not are the same as the problems here in this country. Military operations span a range of, of contingency, which is what most people think of military operations, um, all the way to global health engagement, uh, going to different countries, helping the public health officials there work on their issues, and everything in between. And one of the things we haven't talked about, and we kind of touched on a little bit, is installation pest management. That's the kind of pest management that you think about outside the DOD. That's what happens in cities and towns, uh, urban entomology. And, and if you look at our installations, and this is where we prepare our folks to, to conduct their missions outside, uh, downrange, at our installations, you have every opportunity to, to do pest management in a lots of different situations. For example, any particular installation, you have potentially schools, daycare centers, you have retail sites, you have warehouses, you have training areas, you have clinics and hospitals. Each one of those places requires a different type of pest management to address their issues. And it all starts, as you mentioned, with surveillance, being ahead of the problem, being able to look at all the information uh, regarding a pest management issue and pick the right choices to respond to it, the right management choices. Lots of different elements to the DOD that I think, although other programs incorporate the same concepts, uh, they're applied in a different way. Regardless of the mission objective, Medical entomologists and pest management professionals have to show up ready to handle whatever the environment throws at them. And I'm not just talking about being prepared for a little bit of rain. What I mean is, the bugs that can kill you in the desert versus the jungle are undoubtedly going to be different, meaning that they may require different surveillance and control techniques. That means mission success starts long before day one of deployment. The key to this success? meticulous training, and preparation that allows the team to be adaptable. What we first do and what units do before they deploy or go any place is they find out what threats are in the area. And there's a specific unit within the DOD that collects information from around the world and compiles it as far as medical threats go. And so that would be your first stop to see exactly what's in the area. And based upon what those threats are, you'll take a look through your inventory of surveillance techniques and equipment and design a program that would be specific for that. It also depends upon the duration of the deployment. Uh, you may not have a chance to put out surveillance equipment. It might be just personal protection. That, that's the response to particular threats. Uh, it also depends upon what units are deployed. Uh, it, some units bring a whole kit of tools uh, with them so they can set up a 
pretty large program and comprehensive program. Others, there's not a whole lot that goes along with that, so you have to adjust. So it, it just depends. If Let's say if you're going to the Mideast and you, you know sand flies are going to be an issue, well, then you know what techniques are, are involved with sand fly surveillance. And so you'll take those with you, whether it's a light trap, whether it's a um, plastic sheet with some oil to put in a rodent burrow to see what sand flies come out, you catch them that way. You also know the areas that they tend to be because you should know exactly how sand flies breed and what they do, uh, what their hosts are. So you'll have all that information to set up your program. Uh, in a jungle setting, you could have issues with malaria, dengue, uh, yellow fever. It just all depends upon what information is collected and available to you when you go to that area. I got to tell you, from my experience, it was eye-opening in the desert, is you go out there and you, you kind of know what's going to be there because you have that information. You get out there and, for, for example, fill flies. Now, you're in the middle of a desert. There's really no towns or population anywhere near you. Within a day, you see fill flies and you say, where the heck did they come from? Oh, didn't really think about that. Well, now we got to think about it and what do you do about it? Uh, ants, okay, well, it sort of makes sense, but if you're supporting possibly a medical unit or a medical hospital that's been set up there, well, that's an issue. Uh, you don't want ants in your, your medical facility, so how do you control those? That's something I didn't really think about. So, And you got to, on the fly, kind of think about, okay, well, what kind of ant is it, and, and how do you do surveillance for it? How do you control it? How do you prevent it from happening in the future so you don't have to continue to, to respond, but you're proactive to it? So there's a lot of things that you may have the information for, and then all of a sudden you find out, well, field truthing's a lot, a lot to be said for field truthing, and, and exactly how do you respond to it. And I think that's one of the huge benefits of our community, is we're very adaptable. We, we've learned the, the basics, uh, but now you take that information and you apply it to a particular situation. And, and that makes this job tremendously interesting, as we mentioned at the very beginning, is that you're not going to see the same thing day after day. It's going to be something different, and it's going to be something that you got to solve, basically. How do you set up a program of surveillance and a control and a management program to make sure that it's effective? And whatever you set up here at the beginning might not be effective in the middle because of a variety of different things. Soldiers need to be able to focus on the mission objective rather than the next disease outbreak or illness that could potentially sideline them for the next few days. That means vector control efforts need to operate seamlessly at every level to ensure the safety and protection of their soldiers. So how exactly is this achieved and coordinated across millions of soldiers every single day? Through the careful direction and implementation of various tools and training resources, collectively referred to as levels of support. I'll let Captain Hoffman explain this concept in more detail. It's levels of support, that's what we call it. And your first level of support is the individual and what the individual has going forward. And so that protection is basically their uniform. All our uniforms are treated with permethrin as a repellent against biting insects and arthropods. And then bed nets, head nets, mittens, if it gets to be that bad out there. So you have that level of protection for the individual by themselves. So they take responsibility for their own protection. The next level is the support you'll be provided by a preventive medicine technician, somebody that's experienced in vector control and surveillance. And they can provide limited uh, support, depending upon where they are and what unit they support, to maximum support, where you have an entomologist involved that brings all their equipment with them, their dispersal equipment, their insecticides, their surveillance tools, 
So it ranges from the individual all the way up to the unit support. And then if the environment becomes very mature, uh, you have installations that resemble exactly the installations that are back here in the States. And so you have all those pest management issues that you have to deal with. Uh, again, you can have a, a medical facility on those installations, you can have a retail facility, you can have warehouses, and the pest management issues that each one of those areas faces is a little bit different than the other. So you have to develop a program. And all our installations, regardless of their downrange or, or here in the States, operate on an integrated pest management plan. They all have plans uh, that outline those specific areas that they're responsible for and who's responsible for them and the techniques that are involved to prevent pests from influencing military readiness. Keeping pest management and vector surveillance operating like a finely tuned machine both domestically and abroad is no easy task. It requires ongoing development and improvement of resources as well as a strong educational component. And, as is the case with civilian pest management, the educational component is critical and has played an important role in military pest management throughout history. While this wasn't surprising for me to learn, what I did find interesting was just exactly how the military approached training. See, today we have flashy social media tools, virtual reality platforms, podcasts like the one you're listening to now, and all sorts of other sweet high-tech gear to keep our learners engaged and entertained. But back in the early days of military training, long before we had things like the internet, educators had to find more creative ways to make public health information stick with their soldiers. Since most of the media they had to work with was posters and books, one way they did this was by hiring talented illustrators who could create catchy but informative content for the readers to enjoy. Back in the 40s, um, during World War II primarily, there had to be a method to communicate information. Obviously, electronic communication was, was not there yet, and so the best way that public health preventive medicine people could think of was through movies, um, handouts, posters, uh, things that draw their attention, uh, not scientifically based necessarily, but information that needed to be transmitted so individuals understood the risks and the techniques to avoid uh, reduce those risks. And some of the posters are cartoon oriented because they knew what the, the customer base uh, related to at that point. And you can translate that to today where communication is done through social media. Uh, that was the social media of the 40s. Today we use Facebook, Instagram, all those other things that I don't understand because I'm old. Uh, but that's exactly how we communicate with our customer, one type of customer. So how exactly do you capture an audience's attention through flashy illustrations or animations? Well, you hire the best of the best. And at that time, if you wanted top quality illustrations, then you turn to folks like Dr. Seuss. So Dr. Seuss, before he became Dr. Seuss, uh, was employed by the Army to produce cartoons based upon public health issues that were affecting the troops. And if you look at some of the posters, they look pretty similar to what he has in his books. Uh, another name that you might know is Mel Blanc, who did the, the Looney Tunes cartoons. He was involved in, in producing a lot of the, the movies that came out uh, with information related to topics of importance that the troops needed to know. And so the communications people that time were just absolutely brilliant, and they knew exactly how to communicate things. And uh, read to our kids, they couldn't wait to see these things come out. And, and the beauty of it was they had no idea they were being trained. Uh, they had no idea that this information was something that they needed to know. It's something that just actually interested them. And, and then when it had to be used, they remembered it. 
It's impressive to think of how many lives depend on the efforts and actions of the Armed Forces Pest Management Board. I went into this interview with a healthy respect for what Captain Hoffman and his team do on a daily basis. But by the end of our conversation, I was left blown away at the sheer scope and scale at which the Armed Forces Pest Management Board operates, and how wide their collaborative efforts reach. I had to imagine that the challenges they face are nearly endless. But for my last question, I wanted to know what he saw as the biggest obstacle this team faced. And with the program that's always keeping their focus downrange, I guess I wasn't totally surprised at his response. We know threats. We can identify threats, but what are the risks being contacted by those threats? And where do you focus uh, your attention? Understanding that we all are resource constrained. And so when you're resource constrained, you need to know what's going to have the biggest impact uh, for you. And so your surveillance, based upon a decision support tool, algorithm or whatever it is, can tell you you need to focus on this at this time in this area uh, to reduce the, the risk. And so because of that, how do you guide your decision-making process? Uh, what's involved with that? So I, th I think that's the future. You know, one of the things that really keeps my interest constantly is, is defining what the next whatever it is. What's the next disease? How do you get ahead of that? Can you predict this? And if you can, uh, what do you do to respond to it? I don't know if anybody has that answer, and that's where collaboration comes in, obviously. And, and people are very focused on that. And over the past few years, I think the CDC came out with a number since 2004. In this country alone, seven or eight new vector-borne diseases that we didn't even know uh, were here. Uh, whether that's because we're better at surveillance or whether that's because it's being introduced at a rate that, that we don't comprehend at this point. So what do you do in response to that? How do you protect your installations? How do you protect your people? Uh, what processes are in place that you can confidently say that, no, we're ready. Uh, it's just a matter of when it gets here. Uh, one of the, the concepts that the natural resources folks use when it comes to invasive species is early detection rapid response. That's having a surveillance program set up and you're able to collect these things before they become a problem uh, because you're looking for them or, or because your surveillance program is so effective that you can't help but collect it. And so we're, we're kind of looking at that as well as using those concepts for vectors and, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Dispersal equipment, always looking for more efficient, effective ways to disperse pesticides. I mean, pesticides are part of our program, but they're not the focus of our program. And it's, it's just a matter of being able to effectively address an issue uh, rather than the shotgun approach. You know, almost precision targeting, I think, is, is another area that we're, we're kind of looking at. But again, it's, it's being ahead of the process. Uh, we're, we're basically preventive medicine people, and, and I think we've learned a lot of lessons uh, in the past. It's just a matter of, of collecting all those lessons and trying to figure out how that impacts the program. As the proud son of a Marine, and as the proud uncle of a niece serving in the Navy and a nephew serving in the Army, this interview was special to me for a number of reasons that extend far beyond my normal nerdy interests. I want to especially thank Captain Eric Hoffman for taking the time to educate me and everyone listening on the important work accomplished by the Armed Forces Pest Management Board. I also want to thank all of the men and women of the Armed Forces for your service and your sacrifice. If you're a veteran or active duty in the pest management industry, or you're looking to start your new career in this field, check out MPMA's Pest Vets. This group is committed to engaging veterans and their successful transition to a productive and rewarding career in the pest management industry. Visit www.pestvets.org to find out more. Thanks again for listening to another episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. 
If you liked what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss the release of our next episode. And if you have an idea for a topic you're interested in hearing more about, let me know and we may choose your idea for a future podcast episode. To submit your feedback, email me directly at mbentley at pestworld.org. I'd love to hear what you have to say.